can't build a greener future and look to a sustainable and environmentally um, sustainable future unless we clear up the mess that we've made in the past. Now, nobody, nobody alive now asked for this mess. Nobody wanted this mess, but it's there. Um, there is no magic fairy with a wand to make it disappear. Um, and we have a choice. And so for me, it's very important that we start taking responsibility now for the consequences of our own actions. Did you know that there are half a million metric tons of nuclear waste temporarily stored at hundreds of sites worldwide? In the U.S. alone, one in three people live within 50 miles of a storage site. No country has yet successfully disposed of commercial spent nuclear fuel. But it's not for lack of a solution. So what's the delay? The answers are complex and controversial. In this series, we explore the nuclear waste issue with people representing various pieces of this complicated puzzle. We hope this podcast will give you a clearer picture of nuclear waste, the whole story. We believe that listening is an important element of a successful nuclear waste disposal program. A core company value is to seek and listen to different perspectives. Opinions expressed by the interviewers and their subjects are not necessarily representative of the company. If there's a topic discussed in the podcast that is unfamiliar to you, or you'd like to more closely review what was said, please see the show notes at deepisolation.com slash podcasts. Hello, I'm Kara Hulak, Deep Isolation's Communication Manager. Today, I'm talking to Roy Payne, Executive Director of GDF Watch, a UK-based not-for-profit organization that supports geologic disposal of nuclear waste and wants to ensure that it's done in a way that puts impacted communities and public safety at the core of all decision-making. Roy has more than 30 years of experience running campaigns on complex and often contentious issues. Most recently, he was an advisor to RWM, the UK agency responsible for the country's nuclear waste management and to the UK government on developing the right approaches to stakeholder and community engagement for the UK geologic disposal program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Roy. Really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's just jump right into it. We first like to ask our interviewees, how did you end up working in the nuclear waste field? And then how did you come to lead GDF Watch? I actually joined RWM, the UK's RWMO, um, right at the point at which there had been a review of the previously failed sighting experience. And I joined at a time they were re rethinking the policy. And it struck me at the time that previous uh, sighting policies had been linked to the local electoral cycle. The decision was left with local authority, local municipal leaders, which meant that we never got anywhere because every four to five years there was an election. And bearing in mind, this process can take decades from the moment you start it to the point at which you actually get approval and can start work. And so the electoral cycle in itself is a, is a hindrance. So how do you, under a consent-based process, create a democratic structure that allows the community to actually have its say but do so over a much longer period of time that's sort of exempt from the electoral cycle. So we created a thing called the Community Partnerships 
and the whole new policy was created, which is the one we're now implementing called Working with Communities. I was then tasked with then, well, we've got the policy. How do we now communicate and engage with communities? And I've got a lot of experience in infrastructure and government information campaigns. And so I started out with the traditional approach to it all. But given that it is consent-based, this is a completely different beast from the normal sort of infrastructure and government projects where we're going to build this here and now we're going to talk to local people about what the issues are and take on board their concerns. This actually requires people consent even to have a conversation with you. If they don't wish to have a conversation with you, there's nothing you can do about that. So I started thinking and looking at it from what does all this look like from the community's perspective? And suddenly you've got a very different perspective because someone who's used to working in big corporates and government, you run a campaign and you speak to the audience, was actually looking from the community's perspective, they just have this massive army of the full might of the state, the nuclear sector rolling over their hills. Most of these communities are in rural and isolated areas. They don't have any experience of this subject at all. And all they hear is this massive group of people with large sums of money and a great bounce of power saying, we'd like to bury nuclear waste underneath your homes. That's all they're hearing. So how do you um, engage with them in a way that allows you to at least start having a conversation and over time develop trust, develop relationships and develop understanding? And so when I started thinking about it from the community perspective, I came to a realisation that I probably wasn't that, as interested in managing a government communications campaign as I was in actually looking at it from the community perspective. And certainly as I explored this on an international level, realized the hugely human parallels there were, regardless of political structure, regardless of the, the culture of a country, really looking at this from a community's perspective, from ordinary people's perspective, was the key to unlocking how you can progress geological disposal. And hence I decided that I'd established GDF Watch, primarily focused on the UK siting uh, process, but also um, taken on board and trying to work with international communities as well because I'd become convinced by this stage of the ethical, the environmental, um, and the intergenerational issues related to geological disposal. But it wasn't a really technical issue. This was very much a social and cultural issue. And we needed to look at it from that perspective. Many of our listeners may be very new to what geological disposal even is. So could you give an overview of how a geologic disposal facility would work and why scientists have said for decades that this is the best place for nuclear waste. Yeah, I think it's probably worth just very quickly talking about the research and the scientific background before we get into what is geological disposal. I suspect billions of dollars have been spent over the past three or four decades. And this has been a huge collaboration of the scientific community around the world. Uh, it's the same issues confronting every nuclear country. And to the extent that we know we have people buy into the scientific consensus behind climate change, there is the same, if not greater, scientific consensus behind geological disposal. And in analysing what was the best way of dealing with our, our nuclear waste, our radioactive waste, of course, they looked at all the options. So the obvious ones are send it into space. Well, if anyone's seen the videos, and the space industry itself builds in a certain redundancy that certain rockets will not leave the, you know, uh, the launch pad or blow up shortly after takeoff. That's too high a risk if you're carrying nuclear waste on board to scatter 
highly radioactive materials over a large geographic area and into the, into, and into the atmosphere. So it's a non-starter as an option. The other option was dumping in the sea. Well, that's already been outlawed for the best part of half a century under international law. And we're already seeing from the Russians in the Barents Sea are having to actually pull back all the nuclear submarines they scuttled because it is an environmental threat. And with Western funding and working in cooperation with the Norwegians, the Russians are beginning to remove the nuclear waste from the sea. So if you can't go in the sea, can't be sent into space, land. Now you either leave it on the surface or you bury it. And I come down to, there's lots of you know, people concerns. What happens if, well, if something happens, if there's a rupture of a package or a human error, you have a choice. That, that leak of radioactivity can be straight into the air that we breathe and into the soil that we grow our food in, or it can happen a kilometer underground, a long, long way away from us. Um, so you've got to, you either react instantly to an immediate problem that's poisoning you immediately, or you buy yourself potentially 10,000 years to sort out a solution, should there ever be a need to find a solution. So the geological disposal is rooted in very basic common sense. If we have this waste, we need to dispose of it safely. The easiest, safest, and environmentally soundest way is to bury it deep underground. Now, if we look at a geological repository, there are certain standards which international communities agree to. It must be at least 200 meters underground. Now that's to allow for glacial scouring of the surface because much of this material, there's likely to be several ice ages before it ceases to be uh, unharmful to the environment and to humans. So we need to allow for surface scouring. It can go up to about a kilometre deep, because any deeper, the heat of the, of the earth itself would not allow the materials to cool down. So there is this sort of sweet area, but also the rock you build it in, you can build it in different types of rock, but you've got to be high degree of satisfaction. There are no fractures, there's no water coming to the surface. It's a very particular type of geology. And that's why identifying a proper site for a repository can be so difficult and time consuming because of the detailed geological analysis that you have to do to actually ascertain is this a safe piece of rock in which to bury to build and bury uh, build a repository and bury our waste then the waste itself most people sadly around the world and it's not a joke it's not funny but most people take their cue what, what is radioactive waste from the opening shots of the simpsons it's green gooey stuff People are worried that it's going to come percolating up through their drains and into their homes. Now, sadly, there are real-world examples of such things happening. So, no, no, this is not irrational fear. It's based on currencies around the world of similar things happening. But the waste is solidified. It's then packed inside a very secure steel box that you can stand beside for the next 100 years and you would not have any radioactive... You would not, it contains radioactivity. They're put in these boxes and they're like Lego bricks. They're stacked on top of each other in a deep underground chamber. And then when it's full, you just seal it up and leave it alone. It's effectively, we took uranium from the earth. We're returning a radioactive waste uranium back to the earth in a safe space where it can basically just biodegrade. It can cease to be a threat or a risk. And by the time you've used the, the, the man-made engineer barriers and the natural barrier of the rock, over 100,000 years, there's going to be no radioactivity impacting the environment and, uh, uh, and humans living there. I think the other issue with keeping on the surface is, can we, do we have a high degree of confidence 
that humans can manage this dangerous material for 10,000, 100,000 years continuously? And can they do that without ever making a mistake? Um, now, it may be possible to minimize those risks, but it's very unlikely that we are going to be able to sustain this as a society. I mean, we have history that only goes back four or 5,000 years. We're talking timescales, which are beyond our comprehension. And therefore, the safest thing to do, I'm convinced, is to dispose of it safely in a deep geological facility. And that's what the world scientific community and what world governments. What's quite interesting here is despite the unpopularity of the proposal, politicians and governments around the world have all signed up to it. Occasionally, politicians do the right thing. Um, they don't do something that's unpopular without some degree of necessity. So I think you know, there's a lack of trust in politicians, but if they're proposing something that seems very unpopular, then perhaps you should actually be listening to them that on occasion, politicians will promote unpopular policies because it's the right thing to do. There's a quote on the homepage of the GDF Watch website that says, this issue goes to the core of who we are as a society, our morality and our maturity. Um, some of what you just said kind of leads into this, I believe. Um, tell us who said that, and could you explain how you see the nuclear waste disposal issues being one that is at the core of who we are? Um, well, I came up with that particular quote um, because it actually summed up what I think and feel. And it's not just about nuclear waste. It's really about the sort of times we're in and the challenges that we face um, as a species on a, on a, on a very small planet. So we look at climate change, there are all sorts of issues. We've got an energy crisis at the moment. There are all sorts of resource issues. And we have lived in a society, particularly in the West, that makes very short-term decisions. It's driven by the next election. And so a lot of the things that we need to address, fundamental um, challenges that we face as a country, as a planet, as a species, need long-term thinking. And we need to start planning longer term. So nuclear waste for me is potentially the most difficult subject that we have to deal with. It's basically we've made a pile of nuclear poo and we need to actually manage that and get rid of it. We can't build a greener future and look to a sustainable and environmentally um, sustainable future unless we clear up the mess that we've made in the past. Now, nobody, nobody alive now asked for this mess. Nobody wanted this mess. But it's there. Um, there is no magic fairy with a wand to make it disappear. Um, and we have a choice. And so for me, it's very important that we start taking responsibility now for the consequences of our own actions, rather than as we tend to do as a, as a culture and as a society, keep on manana, manana. We'll just keep moving this forward. At some point, we actually have to start addressing this issue. And in doing so, in terms of the community engagement, the relationship between communities, local politicians, national government, international obligations. Perhaps it's a model that we can start working through that will help us address other bigger challenges that face us. Because it seems to me, again, a lot of our challenges we're facing are, are planetary. And it can be very difficult for people when a decision is made at international level, how that filters down and is, and is impacted, our local community is impacted isn't always explained to them. So if we can find new methods, methods and ways of engaging people at a local level, so they understand 
their contribution to a global challenge, we can also start identifying solutions to other problems as well. Thank you. So what, uh, given your work with the UK government, what um, has the UK learned about geological disposal from its neighbors across Europe? Um, maybe could give an overview of what the other countries are doing, share some takeaways. For example, there's the first spent fuel geologic repository on Kalo in Finland, Sweden's making progress. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the significance of this. I think from a, from a technical perspective, everybody's learning from everybody else. Um, and I think it's probably one of the, the nuclear sector doesn't get applauded very much, but I do think in terms of bringing together the, you know, the best scientific and academic minds, focusing on problems, sharing knowledge, establishing common standards. The nuclear sector in some ways is a sort of paradigm for a, a world that's more connected and facing longer challenges. Um, if you ever go to the IEAA's um, International Atomic Energy Agency's HQ in Vienna, for me, if I went there once, it just seemed like Star Trek Academy. You were bringing in people from all cultures to focus in on one thing, and all of them committed to doing it as safely as possible. So the nuclear sector is very good, technically, a lot of knowledge is shared. Where there seemed to be a, what I consider to be a shortfall, is understanding the communities in which they're trying to, to operate. And the, if you look around Europe at the moment, yes, Finland are more advanced, but the Finns have a very different political culture to the UK, to Sweden, to Germany. In Finland, there's a high degree of trust. They're a technocracy. They trust their politicians, they trust their academics. And if the academics and politicians say, this is the right thing to do, Finns will largely, trust them to do so. The Swedes have progressed, but again there in Sweden, very different culture, political culture, high degree of trust at a local level, and also a sense of responsibility that the citizens, any community has to support the nation because it's a small nation, small population, and there's a, a greater sense of um, homogeneity and support. You come to the UK, there's a high degree of scepticism about politics, there's a very fractured political system, very contentious political system, much harder to um, get agreement and secure agreement. And the process is all of the countries all brought into consent base, but all taking different models. So in the UK, there was a survey of the UK geology, putting together all the known information. It wasn't to identify where it could be built, it was to identify where it couldn't be built. And most of the country, geologically, is a potential host geology for, for a repository. In Germany, they took a slightly different approach, uh, a much more aggressive approach in the sense of identifying areas which were clearly better. And the Germans have gone for where, are the, where is the best geology, rather than just focusing on where it couldn't work, hmm. where is the best geology? and then starting a discussion with the communities in those areas. This is what we're trying to do uh, and explain it. Um, so every country is approaching very similar uh, within its own political. And I think there's more that can be learned from these experiences. I think generally speaking, the whole geological disposal in terms of its socio-political dimension, there's insufficient collaboration 
around the world. Very often, I've been around the world and spoken to people from Asia, um, from across Europe, North America, and it, each community feels like somehow they become the focus of their federal and national government who want to come and do something terrible to them. And that sends up a very strong negative uh, resistance, as you would expect if anybody came in wanting to impose themselves on you, or you feel they're being, you're being imposed upon, you react badly. Uh, what I don't think people fully realise, it's only when you start talking to people, is this is a global problem. If somebody makes an error with their waste, it's not just the locality where the waste escapes, it will get into the atmosphere, it will travel on the winds. There is going to be implications for all of us. Radioactive you know, fallout doesn't know boundaries or borders. So we all have a vested interest in managing this waste safely. And we all have a vested interest in ensuring that when it is done, that the, we, we, are, we, we know where that's being buried and that there's a collective memory. I think that's probably easier done if it's seen as an international approach rather than um, as a sort of local community responsibility. And I also think more broadly, the, um, we're moving into a world that we look around us now the values of younger generations across cultures are much more aligned. The challenges that they perceive around climate change and, 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 around, and the future of the species. And radioactive waste management is part of that milieu. It's not a, a thing on its own. And so, again, if we're looking about building a sustainable future, being more thoughtful about our, our, how we interact with the, with the environment, one of the first things we need to do is to take responsibility for the mess that we already have here and to make sure that's tidied up. Do you think that younger generation will, will help? Will they be more willing to deal with this, even though it, as you said, has been passed on to them from decades ago? Uh, what do you feel when you, when you speak to younger people? Do you, what's the pulse of their thoughts on this? Generally speaking, because it's not a subject that's widely spoken about, it's one of those uh, radioactive ways. Most subjects, when you raise something, if you don't know something and you meet somebody, you're, you, ooh, you ask questions, you want to find out more. But when you raise the subject of radioactive waste, people tend to work on the basis, I don't need to know anything about that. I don't want to know anything about that. They don't even want to engage in a conversation. Mm. But younger people because of the challenges they're facing, because of the culture, that the environment they're growing up in, are, I mean, yes, they resent the burdens being placed upon them and that they feel they've got to take responsibility for, but there's a much more willingness to understand this as an issue that must be gripped, that is in their interests to actually grip. And to some extent, nuclear waste, when it's just stored in surface facilities, is actually a, you know, a negative use of taxpayers' money. It's inert. It just fills a box and it sits there for 100 years until the next box is required. Whereas actually, if you invest in a GDF, you create jobs, you create economic opportunities. Um, and there is actually, you know, it, it's, it's making a valuable contribution to the health and safety of the planet as well. So my general sort of observation of younger people is that they are a lot more responsible collectively for the future of the planet than their parents and grandparents' generations are. Um, and that they're much more prepared to engage in a discussion about this because it's their futures which are at stake. 
Do you think uh, if Oncolo, assuming it's successful, will that move things forward maybe more quickly now that finally um, a deep geologic repository will be actually operating, people can see that it's safe? Um, you know, what, what will it mean when that finally is a reality? I think it, it, it will help because it will show that it a, can be done. We've got to bear in mind there is actually already an operational facility in the United States at WIP. It wasn't meant to be a long term. True. But uh, WIP has already shown its value. There was an incident in 2018 where a package, which only weeks before had been stored on the surface, ruptured. Now, the radioactive leak was contained underground. Had that happened, you know, in the open air or where it was previously stored, it could have been an environmental and public health catastrophe. At least it's 400 metres underground. They may not be able to revisit or use that part of the repository ever again, but nobody was harmed and there was no risk, there was no escape of radioactivity. So it did show the value of a repository. If there is to be, if an incident does occur, much better it occurs deep underground in closed environment rather than on the surface where we can, it affects the air we breathe and the water we drink and the soil in which we grow our food. So it will help, but I think this is, again, it's gonna be a long process. It's not just on Carlo. Um, and what's gonna be interesting is looking at the number of countries that are coming behind, and it'll be one of those people moving at different paces, but you have Germany, you've got France, you've got the UK, Canada, United States, China, Russia. These are in various stages of advanced development. There'll come a point where there's 10, 20, 30 repositories being built simultaneously around the world. And we may be 20, 30 years away from that, but there will come a point where these are being built everywhere. I think, as ever, with so much in, in, in life, you can think of other issues. People are sort of reluctant. If there's just one example, there's two examples. But when there's 20, 30 examples, suddenly everyone's much more relaxed about it. But Oncolo is important in just taking that step forward. Now, let's talk about the other side of the coin. Um, building a large deep mine repository may not be feasible for some countries. For example, countries with small nuclear waste inventories. So can you expand upon what some of their concerns are in such cases? Yeah, I mean, the UK is a very good example of, um, the UK has probably one of the vastest, and most diverse waste inventories of any country on earth. We were pioneers of nuclear for both civil and uh, and uh, military purposes um so both given the volumes and the diversity of the waste there is both fiscal and environmental sense in bearing it in one location and we're also an island with limited space to to, to bury um uh, waste across the uk boreholes would litter the country just politically unacceptable but there are other countries and you think of countries like South Africa or the Baltic states that only have one reactor. They have a much more limited waste profile. You have other countries like Slovenia and Croatia that share a facility, but each is under current rules. Each is obliged to build its own repository, even though there's only one facility. So there probably is potential scope, saying actually just in terms of cost. Also the carbon footprint of building a geological repository I, could, I don't know, I've never looked at the numbers, but I can only assume that drilling a borehole is a lot less carbon intensive than building a full-scale repository. So for a variety of reasons, environmental, financial, um, as well as ethical, 
I can see that there may be examples where smaller waste inventories can be disposed of through built borehole drilling rather than requiring countries to go to the expense of building a very large facility to store very little waste, particularly where two countries are having to do exactly the same facility for a shared amount of waste. And I don't think we should also lose sight. If you read um, a lot of African and Asian media now, the whole issue around um, not just radioactive waste, but waste generally, the countries may not develop civil nuclear programs, but every country now uses MRI scanners. There are medical applications, there are industrial applications, there's academic research, which produces very small, but nevertheless, quantities of high, higher activity radioactive waste. Now, you're not going to require somebody who's got a tiny amount of radioactive waste to build a detailed repository. Again, if we as a community, as a society, want to have advanced mechanics, want to have advanced industries, but one of the consequences is there is some high level radioactive waste. Those countries are gonna to have to find solutions. And so I can see how deep borehole would actually potentially provide a solution, a cost-effective and environmentally sound solution to that issue. Um, but while repositories tend to be, if you've got a large volume, it just makes sense to bury it to the UK, France, Russia, America, um, probably all stand in those, but that's not to say that there isn't a parallel. And I think the, the German Green Party are the only Green Party I'm aware of that support geological disposal. Now, there's an issue around that because as far as I'm aware, the laws of the universe apply equally in Germany as they do in any other country. Um, but they see geological disposal as the least worst solution. Mm -hmm. IEA talks about the best available. Well, those are the same thing. The best available and the least worst depending on your perspective, are exactly the same thing. And of course, we're all, we all keep open the option that if somebody comes up with an even better solution, if scientists and technology and future um, technology means that we can deal with waste a different way, brilliant. Let's, well, but, but we can't just wait and hope. We haven't yet found a cure for the common cold. So we can't just rely upon science or just have a faith that somehow this will be solved for us. We can take responsibility now, start taking actions now, and find solutions which actually meet the environmental, financial, and ethical needs of every community. And some of those borehole may be, may be a more way forward. I'd like to hear a little bit about your background as a community activist in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Um, I know you learned to build bridges of trust between opposing groups. And that skill's likely very helpful um, in what you ended up doing in your career, you know, advising governments on communicate, communicating with stakeholders and communities on waste disposal. So what advice do you give governments to help them be more effective in finding a solution? The, the most key one is to listen. Um, and, you know, you put it down to this basic human relationships. If you want to build a relationship with somebody, you don't sit down and just talk about yourself the whole evening long. You do have to listen to what the other person thinks and feels. Um, so I do worry sometimes that the nuclear sector, because it is largely academic, tend to see this as a massive STEM exercise. If we just teach stupid people about the science, they will understand it. But that's not how communities and, and people operate. When we just have to look now at the issues around vaccination. Uh, we are living in a world where there's a lack of political trust, 
and there's a lack of faith in science or people are prepared to listen to whatever homespun ideas happen to come their way. Um, they're willing to be prey to that. So a question of listening to people, it is about sometimes going the extra mile, going on a meandering, you know, you're not just going from A to B. You may have to, to get from A to B, you may have to go through a whole raft of other alphabet to get to the final point. But you need to go on that journey. And even if people are raising issues which you think are ridiculous, beside the point, they're important to them. And if you want to take them on the journey with you, you're going to have to go on that journey with them. And I think the other issue is um, trust. Trust is a two-way thing. Um, and at the moment, governments, politicians, the nuclear sector, these are not high on the trust barometers of most people in most countries. Um, there's also a degree of lack of trust or fear in the authorities of letting go too much power and engaging with the community. Hmm. Well, to some extent, you have to show a bit of trust to receive, to start building trust. And to some extent, I think it's probably beholden on the governments and the nuclear sectors to actually take the first steps. Um, we're the ones asking people to dance with us. So you have to make the first steps to actually ask somebody to dance with you. Um, and therefore, you have to show and give a little bit more rather than being defensive, concerned about how this is all going to happen. Um, and I think one of the other issues for me, particularly with the nuclear sector, I've worked in many different uh, telecoms, broadcasting, media, sport, lots of different commercial sectors. And they all have their own profile and characteristics and ways of thinking and behaving. And I do think the nuclear sector, quite rightly, there's a mindset of risk mitigation, managing risk out and really focusing on managing risk out, which is entirely the right approach when it comes to matters of nuclear. But you can't apply that same discipline and that same rigour when it comes to people. People are not radionuclides. Mm. You do not perform in the same way under the same conditions in all circumstances. Um, and I think there is a need for sort of again, governments and the nuclear sector, to perhaps they're going to have to get used to operating outside their comfort zone in areas where you're making judgment calls about how you relate to people and manage people, relationships with people. But you can never, ever get the level of risk assurance that you can when you're actually designing a nuclear reactor or a nuclear waste disposal facility, simply because people don't fit that way. Um, so my advice to governments is really to listen, be a little bit more giving, to trust your communities a little bit more, and to be prepared to go on a long amble through the countryside with them, <laughs> rather than trying to get them to, to try to get them from A to B as quickly as possible. It's a journey. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> a long one. Um, anything I did not ask today that you'd like to close out our conversation with, Roy? I've worked with people who work in, you know, from around the world. I have no doubt of the integrity, the honesty, and the earnestness of all those people working radioactive waste. They are doing absolutely the best thing. But as we can see, being somebody who has got the science behind you doesn't mean that people will automatically believe you. Mm. To some extent, um, the suspension of trust 
So how do you build trust? Now, one of the things for me is, one of the things that is not happening at the moment is unmediated connections between the communities who are likely to be impacted by this. And one thing we do see, for right and for wrong, for good and for bad, is that people relying are much more willing to accept the perspective of someone who's just like them, who doesn't seem to have a vested interest. And so the common human experience of potentially hosting a, a, a radioactive waste facility is the same on planet Earth. And I do think there's more that can be done just to allow the, the likely impact communities to talk together, to meet, to share experience, to share their concerns, their fears, their worries. Science, same sorts of science issues comes up in each country. And each time you have to revalidate it. Well, the science, you know, copper corrodes at the same, in the same way, in the same conditions in Sweden as it does in Germany, as it does in Australia, as it does in Argentina. These are the laws of the universe. There's probably scope here, and I think more, more can be done. This is why I, the idea of globalising this issue, rather than seeing it as a national problem to, to, to globalise the issue, is you're more likely to get people willing to progress discussions if they're talking with people who are going through the same experience themselves, a self-help group, if you like. So I think we need to be more sophisticated in the way in which we manage and, and engage with these communities and not to be frightened by their fears but actually allow them to share those fears with other people so that it becomes a, a common understanding and that I think you'll see a lot of the worries concerns the barriers will start to shift if you allow just people to speak to each other about these issues rather than trying to man over manage it and see it as purely a sort of STEM and technology exercise. No, this is a much bigger story about the environment, planet, future, um, and local empowerment. People actually feeling they have some say over the future direction of their own community while also contrib contributing and making a powerful contribution to the safety of the planet. Well, thank you so much, Roy. It's been uh, wonderful talking with you today, and thank you for joining us. Well, lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me.